All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views, and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve, special episode of Bell Curve, because this is the season finale for season five, where Miles and I are going to be recapping all the episodes that we've done thus far on liquid staking. It's great to be back. It's a little bittersweet, you know, finishing a season. But um, I th- yeah, I think we went into the season not sure if there was enough maybe to even have a full season on liquid staking. And by the end of it, I feel like we have even more to talk about that we didn't get to, but I think we still covered a lot of ground and yeah, I'm really, really happy we decided to dig in on this topic. I agree with you. So I'm looking here and maybe to give the, just a little bit of a roadmap for the audience who's listening in, you're, you're absolutely right. We ended up covering an enormous amount of ground. Some of the themes that we thought about moving in, going into this season was we were very interested in market structure. So what was the market structure end game going to be for liquid staking protocols? And specifically, we were interested in looking at power laws, right? So is this going to be a very fragmented market or more of a winner take all or winner take most? We're interested in the principal agent problem and how you could maybe mitigate that uh, with different mechanisms, which we covered in in detail. And uh, we didn't really talk that much about dual governance. We will a little bit in this episode, uh, but also the staking router that Lido's uh, pioneering. Uh, social scaling, that was a really big thing. And that is, you know, not to make this too topical, but the self-limiting debate is cropping up in a big way for Lido again as it approaches 33% of stake. That's all over the timeline these days. So we'll touch on that. We also talked about uh, different approaches um, and sort of LST adoption across the ecosystems of not only Ethereum, but Cosmos and Solana. And I think looking back at the history was very instructive about why uh, Lido specifically found product market fit on Ethereum as opposed to some of these other ecosystems. But there's some experimentation that's going on, especially in Cosmos land that I find super interesting. So we'll kind of dive into that. And then last but not least, we we spent a good amount of time talking about uh, earlier in the season, the intersection between liquid staking and restaking, which thought was great. It, we kind of got at this, this tension between letting things be very permissionless and turning things over to governance as opposed to uh, this kind of this idea of training wheels and having a bit more of an opinion from a more centralized entity, but that actually might uh, result in a better outcome in terms of even decentralization paradoxically over time. So you want to just start off, Miles, I'll just turn this over to you to, to kick it off. But you know, what are your thoughts on market structure? Uh, like, how do you see all of this playing out? What do power laws look like? And maybe we could talk about specifically within Ethereum and then how that might ripple out. Sure. Um, so I think we went into this season, or at least I did, you know, with the assumption or with the thinking that this is likely going to be a winner take most, uh, winner take all sort of market um, per ecosystem. I think we can get into this, but I, I, you know, I don't think these network effects necessarily travel that well as evidenced by, you know, Lido's domination on, on Ethereum that has not necessarily translated into their, you know, Solana products winning or their, uh, you know, we'll see with Cosmos. Um, but yeah, I think maybe just a couple thoughts. I think as an LST provider, the most important assets you have are brand, which kind of, comprises of security and and really just Lindy. Um, 
and integrations. And so I think, you know, the long-term winners are, are probably in production today uh, because these early mover advantages, you know, really just compound over time, right? The, it, earlier you are and without getting hacked, the more Lindy and, you know, that kind of, uh, kind of accrues to the brand, right? Um, and then the more time you have to build up liquidity for your token, which helps with integrations, right? So you can see Lido's early mover advantage materialized into being the first to integrate with Ave, the first to integrate with Maker, um, and that you know further boosted their lead. And so, yeah, I think, but it's at the same time, it's very interesting to look at, I guess, market penetration across these different ecosystems. And we talked a lot about this, but it was kind of the perfect storm on Ethereum. Um, I think. I forget who we were talking to. I think it was Aiden who said basically the more broken you know your protocol is uh, in terms of handling liquid staking, you know the more prevalent liquid staking is going to be, or maybe the more broken it is at handling stake, right? And so if it's very easy just to natively you know within your Kepler or your Phantom wallet delegate your uh, soul or atom to a validator, then you know that's you're not going to necessarily need to go point to something like Lido in order to stake, right? Um, and so I think the difficulty of staking mixed with the, you know, existing DeFi ecosystem made, you know, Ethereum extremely attractive for liquid staking. Lido was the early mover advantage. Um, it's now gotten off to a lead that makes everybody nervous because uh, they think about Lido as one entity. You know, I, I don't think about Lido as one entity. I think about, you know, the stake in Lido as, as comprising of whatever it is, 30 validators. Um, but it is one entity in terms of its governance. And so we can talk about it later, but you know, how do you unlock further market share by getting the market comfortable you know, with your lead? You can mitigate the principal agent problems through something like dual governance, you know, opening up the staking pools to become permissionless through the staking router, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so yeah, that was just kind of a Long rambling, uh, a lot of thoughts there. A lot, lot of good stuff there. Let's let's break some of this down and maybe try to give for listeners sort of a clear and explicit prediction or picture of how we see the future playing out. But let's say maybe definitively at the end of this season, how we're feeling about it is there are very strong power laws or network effects uh, within individual blockchain ecosystems that don't necessarily travel. So what we would expect to see in the future is a liquid staking ecosystem on Ethereum dominated by Probably at this point, it looks like Lido. They have a pretty a lead that would be very, very difficult to to beat. And the reason for that is sort of this lindiness and securityness. Obviously, for those of us who've been paying attention to crypto over the last couple of years, hacks are still incredibly real. And I think there's, you know, in order for you to justify not taking, you know, using the service product or service of a leader. I mean, the product has to be an order or two orders of magnitude better. And there's just not that much to really differentiate with in liquid staking. So that lindiness and securityness and the amount of, that will lead to liquidity, which is ultimately what you really want from a, from liquid staking protocol. So what we would expect to see is probably Lido being dominant on Ethereum and then fragmentation. What we would not necessarily expect to see is Lido being the dominant staking liquid staking provider across other blockchain ecosystems. To your point about network effects not traveling, uh, Lido made a pretty unsuccessful uh, play into Solana a while ago. It was very interesting to talk to Zave, who was uh, 
the CIO at Chorus One, and they Chorus One was sort of the back end for Lido expanding into Solana. He mentioned one of the lessons learned and when they were sort of doing their postmortem on why this didn't work, token incentives were actually a really big deal. So uh, that, that that's one of the reasons why maybe concretely network effects don't travel. So what you would expect to see is a dominant liquid staking provider in Solana take off in a very similar way that it had Lido has on Ethereum. Maybe we talked to Lucas from Jito. Maybe that's Jito Soul. Maybe it's Marinade. I think they're the front runner today, but probably very, very similar. And then in the the Cosmos ecosystem, uh, I think Stride is the dominant provider now. I'm not saying any of these things to you know Kingmake or anything like that. I'm just pointing out who the leaders are today. So that's probably how we would expect to see it playing out in the future, right? Liquid staking protocols. I I just don't see them as the kind of product where there's going to be some big technical disruption in a couple of years that, you know, unseats or the existing like incumbents. Um, I guess you can compete on yield, right? We've talked about that a little bit and it's unclear exactly where that stacks up versus brand and security and, you know, Lindy basically. Um, We, it, it seems like it doesn't actually, you know, an extra percentage point or two of yield does not really move the needle enough to like unseat Lido. Um, if there were to be, you know, cause I think Lido is not the highest yielding, uh, LST by, by a lot. Um, and yeah, I, I think maybe one thing also to note is that there is a market, uh, that at the moment can't touch Lido. Um, and this is, or <laughs> I'd say this market is twofold. The market that's not using Lido is the market that can't use Lido. And there's also going to be a market that likely won't be able to, won't know about Lido, right? Uh, they might know about Coinbase, uh, right? And so I do think that, you know, it, it will be very interesting to see, I think Lido wins the market of everybody that, you know, can use Lido. Uh, but I do think there is a market of, you know, for the Liquid Collective, for products like CBE um, that, you know, has a more, I guess, enterprise grade validator set, KYC front ends, things like that, right? That fiduciaries can offer to their customers. Um and just how big a market that is it, it, in the end game, I don't know. But I do see Lido. I think it's going to be very difficult for Lido to break into that market um, unless they give their users the ability to delegate to whatever validator they choose or whatever validator set they choose. And we know that that in itself, you know, needs has trade-offs, right? Because that today is part of governance, right? How these allocations are deposited. Um, and governance allows, at least allows, you know, Lido to stay Ethereum aligned. Um, if you hand that choice over to the users and all of a sudden we have billions and billions and billions of stake pouring into Lido that is being deposited and uh, delegated to, you know, uh, a staking router pool of like three validators, right? Then all of a sudden people are going to get like, maybe these self-limiting debates get a little bit more legitimate. Um, but I, I think that's, yeah, I think Lido's going to have to think long and hard about the best way to handle that, um, and the trade-offs there in order to get break out and, and reach that market. Um, but yeah, I, so I think really there are winner take all, like, you know, a lot of effects here, but we have to keep in mind that the cust you know, the customer preferences and some of them can't necessarily use the winner. Um, so there might be two there. But apart from that, you know, I don't see a lot of winners here. It kind of depends on how many big like proof of stake DA layers you see in the end game as well. 
right? Maybe it's like a handful of big layer ones like Celestia and Ethereum, obviously, and Solana, um, you know, Cosmos Hub. Uh, then, you know, this doesn't really apply at the roll-up level, right? Um, or hope, I, I don't think it's, it's unlikely at this point that we're going to see a lot of like roll-up tokens, you know, with permissionless staking and for their sequencers launching LSTs themselves. Um, so, you know, it, it could be just a handful of winners at the end of the day. That's kind of my prediction. And I think that Lido is really well positioned for Ethereum, you know, that is not extremely sensitive with KYC and, you know, enterprise grade validators. I think there's probably another market that is right uh, on Ethereum. And then I think Stride's really well positioned for, you know, a couple other layer ones like, like Atom in the Cosmos ecosystem. Celestia and and I think Gito and um, there's a couple of players. I don't know how Solana is going to play out, um, but it's it, it is a little bit more fragmented over there. It's pretty equal market share actually between yeah. between the three players. Well, that was a that observation actually came from our Solana episode. It was Xavier or Lucas that said that the more the the more the protocol does, the less opportunity there is for external liquid staking providers. So. This is probably a good opportunity to transition to this idea of social scaling and the self-limiting debate. So the again, to, to just go back and do a little bit of a history lesson, and this is something that we've covered pretty extensively throughout the season, so I don't want to get into too many details, but the history of why, at least from my perspective, uh, Lido found product market fit on Ethereum, whereas on the other ecosystems, Solana and Cosmos that we covered on this season, there's actually a much higher penetration of staking, but a much lower penetration of liquid staking was sort of threefold, which is one, there's no in-protocol mechanism to delegate stake. There's a large demand out there for people to stake passively. Just to give a little bit of a history lesson, we've covered this pretty extensively throughout the season, so I don't want to go too far into it, but threefold reason why liquid staking found product market fit on Ethereum where it didn't in Cosmos, for instance, where the concept was invented or at least first conceived of. So one, there was obviously, there was the dynamic of the beacon chain and the with, essentially there was you, the dynamic was when you staked your Ethereum uh, before there was the merge, there was an indeterminate period of time for when you would be able to get that Ethereum back if you would ever be able to get it back. So when Lido launched, the immediate value proposition was that you can stake your Ether but then you can continue to use it. And that was an enormous value proposition for Lido right off the bat. Number two, there's no in-protocol delegation for stake. There's an enormous demand for holders of Ethereum to stake passively and to receive those rewards. But Ethereum said, we don't want to put this in the protocol for a variety of reasons that we've covered in terms of how we want our validator set to ultimately look like. So we don't want to do that. And then three, there was a thriving DeFi ecosystem on Ethereum. So DeFi first really took off and is still most active by far on Ethereum. So there was a capital efficiency question of, hey, I want to stake and secure the network and receive that yield, but I also don't want to give up the opportunity costs of participating in DeFi. So liquid staking neatly solved all three of those things. So now what happens is that, you've had, that you have liquid staking take off in Ethereum, these market dynamics that we talked about, the winner take most or all, market structure is starting to play out and, and Lido is gobbling up stake on Ethereum. And again, I don't think this is, you know, obviously Lido executed, they were directionally right. They got a little bit lucky based on the, the ecosystem, but this probably natural dynamic of a natural monopoly, similar to a utility provider is starting to play out. 
And then folks in Ethereum are saying, whoa, 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 this is quite risky here. Um, if there were to ever be something like a catastrophic slashing event, an enormous amount of ETH got evaporated, this could actually mess with how the protocol comes to consensus and secures itself. And another, you know, an, another thing that could happen is ultimately if in, in a world where uh, Lido has 100% of, the, of Ethereum stake, for instance, then suddenly the governance token of Ethereum is really the Lido token. And huge decisions for the Ethereum protocol can actually be made by a much smaller market cap subset token. So I think these are the problems that are starting to get raised. And I think there are good, good, there are good perspectives on both sides of this debate. Uh, Miles, I'd be curious, what do you think about the, the self-limiting debate overall? And then maybe we can get into the, some of the ways that Lido is thinking about mitigating these risks. I think it, it is a, it's a, it's very, there's a lot of dynamics that are interesting around the self-limiting debate. Um, you know, both kind of what it says about this social governance, right, of the, the Ethereum follows. And it's a little bit, it's always a little bit opaque as to, you know, like how things, how decisions are made in Ethereum. Um, and it's just, just very kind of an interesting, there's a lot of interesting stuff there. Um, I would just say that, you know, first of all, the people who have come out and said we're going to self-cap at 22%, you know, they have a fraction of the market share of, of Lido and 22% would be an incredible outcome for these players given, you know, their current positioning. Um, and two, you know, again, we're now, the focus is on Lido, but in, in a negative way maybe, but three years ago, Lido was really the one kind of hope for Ethereum to avoid network centralization with all these like pseudo liquid staking tokens from exchanges, right? Um, so there is the question of, okay, would Ethereum look, how would Ethereum look today if Lido didn't exist? It would look worse. But at the same time, you can think about, all right, yes, it's not great that one governance um, token controls basically 33% of the network stake. That's not exactly true, right? Because we know that all these validators, there's 30 validators and, you know, it's, they're not controlled by the, the governance token of, of Lido directly. Um, so what is Lido doing to mitigate all of this? And are we okay with Lido having 66% in two or three years if dual governance is live, right? And the they've launched all these permissionless staking pools via the staking router. And their stake is now distributed, not just across like 30 validators, but a thousand validators, right? That's what they're working towards. And that's really the question we should be asking is in two or three years, assuming that this chart of Lido's market share continues to go up and to the right, what will Lido look like, you know, at, at 66%, at 80%, and are we comfortable with that? Um, that that's kind of what I'm thinking about. And if it's thousands of validators, and that's not a terrible outcome, um, and you just have to be also super realistic about what it would look like if Lido decided to, you know, hang up all of their work today and say, you know, that's it for us. Like, stop depositing to us. What would Ethereum look like in two and three, two to three years if that was the case? Yeah. So to to summarize this, let let's just go out and, and say it would probably be an undesirable outcome if Ethereum consensus was governed by this opaque centralized organization. I would say that's not a good outcome. And I don't think that that's what Lido wants. So there are a couple of different ways that you could continue to ensure that 
the liquid staking ecosystem on Ethereum remains not dominated by any, uh, couldn't be easily co-opted. So one strategy would be this self-limiting debate that you see. And you could actually try to socially enforce the idea that no one liquid staking provider should get more than 22% of governance or of uh, of the mar- of market share. And there have been various uh, suggestions for how to do this. The one that I think makes the most sense to me if you were to go down this route is to gradually increase the rake that Lido takes on everything after 22%. And you know, there's sort of a, there's a, dy- it's basically dynamic fees. So the, the, for every bit of stake that you have over that 22%, Lido starts charging higher and higher fees to the point where that stake naturally moves to other providers. So that's one way you could do it. You could just say, we want a, a healthy ecosystem of, of different participants. The other approach would be to say, guys, there's no use fighting this. This is, this is, there are natural market forces at work here. And instead of trying to force an unnatural distribution of liquid staking providers. Instead, what we should do is accept that there's a natural monopoly here and we should focus on making the winner take most, which is looking like it's going to be Lido. We should make them as decentralized as possible to the to the point where governance is almost as decentralized as Ethereum itself. And instead of having this whitelisted set of node operators, we have many hundreds or even thousands of validators. And that's what the staking router is. And then we should also make sure that the governance of Lido is very robust and that Steeth holders actually have some say in governance as well, which is where you get dual voting or dual governance rather. Sorry. So I'm, I'm a little bit torn here on it. I can really see both perspectives. I would probably not be on the side of self-limiting. And I do want to give a shout out to uh, folks like Superfizz who are have just been extremely beneficial to the ecosystem the Ethereum ecosystem overall, I totally understand the arguments and where they're coming from here. And I think, you know, if I were to try to steal me on the other side of this debate and say, hey guys, there's a huge problem here. I'm watching this meteor come right for us and at least I'm trying something, right? But what I would say is I think the downsides of trying to enforce a self-limiting debate would be A, you actually want to incentivize entrepreneurs to come and build enormous businesses. And I think this. There are very few things in crypto that have true product market fit. I, I think you can. We've talked about this before. I think you can make a really compelling. Uh, you can make a very compelling argument that it's basically Bitcoin and Ethereum. It's the centralized exchanges. It's probably stable coins and it's liquid staking tokens. And to take the dominant liquid staking token provider and try to cap it right out of the bag. I just don't think we have enough examples of product market fit in crypto that we want to be doing that. And it just sets a bad precedent, I would say. So that that downside to me outweighs the the upside. And I think it probably makes sense to approach different, uh, pursue a different approach. The other thing I think is you're starting to get, you're starting to see much more this idea of Ethereum alignment. And I think it's very well intended, actually. The the idea is that Ethereum has these values as an ecosystem. We want to see these values propagated around uh, different businesses and providers of products and services that crop up. The problem is Ethereum doesn't have a formal governance system. And when you don't have a formal governance system, there are pros and cons to that. But then you start to get this idea of Ethereum alignment. Everyone starts to ask, well, what does that really mean? And who is setting the definition of what Ethereum aligned really is? And it starts to feel very shadowy and Illuminati-esque when it really isn't like that. It's a, it's a well-intentioned group of people that I think are trying to push a good set of values. 
but there's an optics question that I think is only going to get worse. So I I really do think it makes sense for the community to question this idea of what Ethereum aligned really means and who's setting these ideas. I think there needs to be a little bit more transparency for going down this route because I think it, people will continue to reject it as a yeah, I agree. as an idea. I mean, I don't I just also don't think it scales, right? Like we can't just rely on yeah. the what is considered Ethereum aligned in the depths of a bear market where it's really just like, you know, missionaries left at this point that are building. And so maybe Lido doesn't look Ethereum aligned today relative to those people. But again, zoom out like two or three years and say we actually, you know, do grow the Ethereum user base by 10 or 100x. Like Lido is going to seem pretty aligned at that point and you're not going to be able to rely on everybody, you know, kind of, falling suit and like into this kind of goodwill approach of, of building businesses. Um, it's just, it's not going to work. I think the two, if you're going to be realistic, the two ways to approach this, if you don't like that future, um, are one to push to build some sort of regulation into the protocol itself, like the LSM, like that is a practical way of self-limiting, uh, or, or of limiting these different providers. Um, or to build a better competitor, right? Um, because those are the only ways that you're actually going to unseat Lido, I think. Oh, and like, it's it's just kind of nearsighted thinking to me. I, I think it also doesn't scale. And one, maybe to put things in, in crypto talk is if blockchains are tools for social coordination and in large scale human coordination, you need both carrots and sticks, I think. And what my, at least my perception is Ethereum alignment is this emerging stick. And if you don't do what we say or we want, again, I think in a, in a positively intentioned way, there will be these negative repercussions for you. And I think if that ends up being the dominant stick, so to speak, you open yourself up to a very specific type of griefing attack, which is exactly what Sam Bankman-Fried did, which is he said the right shibboleths, right? But he obviously, he he wasn't really aligned, but he made himself appear that way to many people very successfully over a long period of time. And I think if you, what you could see down the road is people saying they're Ethereum aligned and doing all the things that look look right, but they aren't necessarily actually. So that that's- I'm, I'm imagining the Trojan horse, that, you know, like Ethereum aligned. Up top, the and God, horse God knows yeah. what's underneath, right? Um, but yeah, I think that I think that's right, and exactly. I think that there's also like from a design standpoint, we can talk about training wheels, and I think that that was you know the crux of of the criticism uh, last year in the self limiting debate, right? That they had no plans to move off, or, or they hadn't published plans to move off of this curated permission set, um, and. But the reality is if they had had a permissionless set like Rocket Pool from the beginning, they would not have, you know, been able to scale to the size that they were at where they were actually, you know, the market leader instead of Coinbase and Binance and stuff like that. Um, and I think we're seeing that yeah. now with rollups too. You know, we'll see rollups that attempt to launch with a permissionless sequencer set, um, which will require, you know, getting a supply side to bond collateral and like that's going to be an economic cost to the sequencer to the roll-up i mean um and the ones that start off with these training wheels right let's say we have four or five increasing to 10 maybe to 20 
um, governance elected sequencers and they don't have to bond collateral and we're, they're going to act in the ways that we tell them to through governance or we'll boot them off. Right. Like that to me is a really good analogy of, you know, those rollups are going to scale and, and have better economics and get to the point where, you know, they're big enough that people care. And then maybe they move to some sort of, you know, more permissionless sequencer set, uh, if they're big enough for, you know, that to be necessary. Um, but yeah, I think we're starting to see those training wheels coming off um, with Lido and we're starting to see, you know, the introduction of like dual governance as another way to mitigate the principal agent problem. Hey everyone, we've got a great episode here, but before we do, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to Permissionless. This is the biggest and best conference in all of DeFi. It's the one that we do with Bankless, who's a great partner for us. Last year, we had almost 7,000 people there in West Palm Beach. We are moving this year to Austin, Texas from September 11th through the 13th. And if you are a listener of Bell Curve, any of these last five seasons, this conference is basically custom made for you. We're going to be talking about liquid staking, the theme of this season. We've got a bunch of great panels on MEV. If you listen to the App Chain thesis, we've got a bunch of Cosmos folks out there in full force. We're talking about the converging architecture of Solana, the roll-up space in ETH and Cosmos. So I would love to see all of you there. And to reward you for being such great listeners to Bell Curve, you get a special 30% off code. It's Bell Curve 30. That'll get you 30% off tickets. Click the link in the show notes and then head over to the permissionless site and make sure that you get your ticket today. Again, that is Bell Curve 30. Click the link in the show notes. Let, let's talk a little bit about this tension that we brought up earlier in the season. And maybe this can be a good segue into restaking as well in between something making something permissionless, but then also degrading the user experience or potentially diluting the outcome that we would want to see. So let's use the example of uh, the App Store that we brought up earlier in the season, where Apple actually takes a very opinionated approach about the standards that developers need to have to participate on that App Store. The reason that they do that is to curate a better experience for users of the application. So for instance, if Apple were to just have no opinion about the types of apps that people could build and propagate on their store, it would ultimately lead to a much worse user experience for all these different reasons. So on, on the one hand, you could say, hey, this is Apple stepping in. They're making it not very permissionless, uh, not good for all of these reasons. Who's really in control here? On the other hand, they're doing it. It probably led to a better outcome for users and developers, I would argue, in the long term. You see the same tension, I think, cropping up in liquid staking and also eventually restaking when it goes live in a big way. So John Charbonneau has done, I think, a good job of propagating this idea of liquid staking uh, tokens as a, as a force for decentralization. And you could imagine if from day one, Lido had not adopted a whitelist and just said, we're just going to take any validators that want to become a part of this network. What you probably would have wound up with was a extreme power loss in terms of the node operators that ended up winning. And they might have just, for instance, if it was totally random, maybe all of them would be in the same geography, right? I mean, that's that's not something that you want because then you're you're subject to the whims of a regulatory regime. Instead, uh, for better or worse, Lido, to, I, I would argue for better, they took a very opinionated approach in the beginning and said, actually, we're going to do a, a whitelisted set of node operators. And not only do we want to make sure that they're very performant, and that they're professional organizations here so that uh, delegators aren't going to get slashed and, and things like that. But also we want it to be geographically diverse so that it's not the our entire, the, uh, the supply side of our two-sided marketplace here isn't subject to any one particular regulatory regime. So again, 
you could make the argument and say, hey, this isn't great. This isn't permissionless. But on the other hand, if you had opened it up to the permissionless free market from day one, you would have gotten not such a good outcome. Now, th this is where I think training, the concept of training wheels comes in where they're moving towards that. And that's what the staking router is. And just to refresh folks, the staking router is this set of moving the gradual progression of moving from whitelisted set of node operators to a diverse set of individual modules. So for instance, there could be a, we talked about the intersection of the staking router and DVT, which is distributed validator technology, which makes, which makes it much easier for solo stakers. There could be a community module, maybe an institutional module, just opens it up to decentralizing the set of validators to a point where I think we would all, that that's what we would all ultimately. Yeah, they took their time though, right? Um, to do that. And, and they got to a place where they can, you know, we're able to develop like this is this is a technical breakthrough. I want to say first of all, this is like the first, you know, liquid staking protocol that it has. This has had multiple validator sets right within the same liquid staking protocol. And yeah, I think I think it is a big deal. Um, maybe just to go back to that App Store uh, analogy. I mean, it's kind of three three options that the App Store could have taken. It was either you know we're going to curate this. Um, and we're going to make sure that that's a great user experience. Uh, you know, there's a small hurdle to get through as an app on the supply side, but there's no economic cost except for going through the process. They could make it completely permissionless with no, you know, bond at stake, and it's just a shit show, right? And everybody is using all these apps. They get hacked all the time and losing lots of money. Uh, maybe they're scams, or they could, you know, <laughs> draw the analogy to say like Rocket Pool. Okay. It's permissionless to join the app store, but you have to put up some collateral in case, you know, your users get hacked, you have to reimburse them or something like that. Right. And that's, that's a huge, you know, like economic cost to the supply side. And so they would have an app store with very few apps on it. Right. Because they're all these startups that don't want to post economic, you know, collateral. So maybe just extending that analogy a little bit further as to why that scales the, the best and has the best user experience, but you know, now they're at the point where they can safely sort of take off those training wheels. Um, and I think Eigenlayer will face the same sort of challenge as they, you know, first just need to establish themselves, right? They need to make restaking prevalent. Um, and then once it becomes large, they need to figure out how to remove, you know, central points of failure and, and centralization, like the slashing veto council, right? That is, is kind of gatekeeping which AVSs get this human backstop of a slashing protection. Um, and, you know, Sri Ram talked about, hey, we're going to have a marketplace of veto councils, right? And then that kind of removes us as the only option for an AVS. Um, and then we're also going to, you know, once these contracts are battle hardened and an AVS has been operating without issues for a long time, we can ossify those contracts. And then there's no need for the veto council anymore because we're confident any slashing event that goes through is correct. Um, we also talked about, you know, Cubist and the anti-slasher technology that they're bringing on. So it's about, you know, kind of putting on these training wheels until you can develop technology and, and different ways of like, you know, designs to kind of break the trade-offs. Um, and we're now seeing Lido try to break that trade-off with, with the staking router and dual governance. Um, and we'll see Eigenlayer, you know, face similar challenges, uh, if, and when they become as, as, you know, as large of a market force as Lido. Okay, I want to get into restaking here and then transition into the intersection of liquid staking and restaking and why we were focusing on that this season. And I think one of the 
the episode of Shriram was one of my favorite of the entire season. Um, but before we do, I want to just, again, give the audience something a little bit concrete. And I want to ask you a question of, let's say, you know, we're having this conversation two to three years from now, and we're looking at the liquid, the staking router. What does that ultimately look like to you? Is there, how many modules are there? Are there, is there sort of a community module, a DVT module, an institutional model module, and then the whitelisted module? Is there five or six? Or is there, are there many, many more modules than that to the point where maybe there are large holders of ETH, Maker doesn't rehypothecate, but let's say some big uh, DeFi protocol with thousands of ETH in it or hundreds of thousands of ETH said, hey, I want to use Lido services here to liquid stake, but let's, let's be honest, guys, I shouldn't be getting the same rates here. You shouldn't be taking the same rake from me as you are from someone who's just delegating one ETH to you. So I want to work out some special preferential terms, or maybe I have these very specific parameters uh, about the liquid, like withdrawal period yep. or something like that. So what do you think the, what do you think the liquid uh, staking router ultimately? Oh, it's it's like a really interesting liquid. question to kind of think through here. And I think there's two components, right? Is first you need to, it, you need to get through governance to basically implement a new validator set, right? A new staking pool. And then the second and probably more important question is how much of new stake gets distributed to that new validator set, right? And I think they'll start off very slow with, okay, we'll introduce this new DVT, you're right, permissionless set. We'll cluster all these permissionless, you know, like home stakers basically with, you know, a chorus one or with a figment um, within the same DVT cluster to protect them. Okay, great. Now we've got kind of a safe setup. How much stake should we give to them? Um, and I think it will start off with something very small, like, you know, under 1%, but getting past that hurdle and getting Lido governance comfortable with saying, okay, actually, no, we want the DVT, you know, set to have like 25%, right? That's the first, that's the first step. Cause it doesn't matter if you have a million of these, you know, new modules, but 95% of the stake going to the safe module. Right. So I think it really you have to think about it on, on two, two axes there. And then, okay, great. So we'll have a permissionless DVT set. We'll have, um, you know, maybe one other sort of general purpose set that makes the protocol at like more Ethereum aligned and healthier. Um, but then what are the other sort of modules that could come in? Um, you know, I, I kind of expect there to be a maker module if if that is a really big distribution channel for them. Um, and if maker decides that Steeth is going to be, you know, basically the collateral um, of 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 Lido, uh, I'm sorry, of the main collateral of, of Dai, um, and they want some sort of kickback, right, for those deposits. Um, and so you could see this becoming sort of like a BD strategy where, you know, you can integrate steeth into your protocol make it a critical part of your protocol you know don't be like fracks who went off and built their own um you know liquid staking protocol use us and we'll kick back some deposits to you um but then after that i think it really depends on whether or not they figure out a way to let users choose which module um they delegate to right because if users can't choose which one to delegate they want to delegate to uh, then I don't see there being a ton of modules. I do see there being a much more, you know, a larger distribution of stake and a, like thousands of validators, but I think you can bring in thousands of validators to say like the DVT module. Um, if they let users delegate 
to the module of their choice, then I can see there becoming lots more modules. Um, and I don't think we'll get into a much different self-limiting debate if that becomes the case. And, you know, 40% of Lido's stake has been allocated to like the module with Coinbase Cloud and like, you know, staked and maybe a handful of other ones. Like that's going to be a very different conversation. That's why I think it's going to be actually a, less of a no-brainer than it might sound like to make that decision. Um, does that make sense? That, that's kind of how I'm thinking about it. Yeah, I think so too. There are also middle grounds there. For instance, governance could just limit uh, limit or limit the amount that any one module could get to say 10% or something like that over a period of time. So again, always yeah. shades of gray and, and things that you could do to to not be as binary, but I agree with that. And that, that hint set as well, I think the bigger idea of fungibility as well in within this, right. this topic. And that's maybe where we'll start to get into this idea of liquid staking and restaking intersecting, because as soon as you start to, you can make an argument that as soon as you start to let users direct their, their stake to specific validators, that what you actually have is more specific. So yeah, on a party risk uh, to one set of validators as opposed to a general, uh, you know, general exposure to all of the validators within this staking pool. And those positions that you have look a little bit less fungible. And again, for folks who are trying to get a mental model of what this looks like, I would suggest going back and listening to the episode that we did with Adrian and Vance. But consider it like a a, a pool of assets mm -hmm. in, in a sense, mm -hmm. right? Um, where you have a claim on that pool of assets similar to today be not exactly like this, obviously, but uh, sort of a money market fund-esque type thing uh, in the future, and maybe we could get into this discussion as well, could look more like a mutual fund yeah. or something like that if we allow a restaking module within this, sure. this this staking router, and then you start to get token rewards in, in different and different things. But that idea of fungibility, I think, is key. And we heard over and over again from liquid staking providers this season that fungibility is the one thing that you do not want to mess with. So I think there will be a tension in between how much these liquid staking protocols allow users to yeah. choose things or the optionality that they have versus never crossing that yeah. line of breaking. Yeah, it's interesting because the LSM in some ways does break that trade-off. You get an NFT that represents, mm -hmm. you know, your stake and your delegation, right? But then you then in order to get back to this LS this thing being useful, right? You deposit the NFT into Stride. Um, but in doing so, you then lose, you know, that validator specific delegation. Like Stride has the ability to rebalance your your stake and redelegate it to other validators. If your validator gets slashed again, it's it has to be socialized across the entire you know uh, holder set of that LST. I think that's where it gets a little bit trickier. Is you know if you give them the choice to delegate right to the module of their choice, then you'd have to give them an NFT, and then that NFT would have to get pooled with other NFTs, and 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 you kind of you know go back on like the benefits of why you you know, wanted an NFT in the first place. So anyways, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very difficult. Uh, we'll see if, you know, th that's the only technical like innovation I could see coming in the, you know, if someone figures that out in the next couple of years. Let's talk a little bit about restaking that tension between having an opinion or sort of training wheels, uh, so to speak in, in the early days, uh, for restaking and where it's ultimately headed. And then let's get into the intersection of liquid staking and restaking. Cause I thought that was a critical something pretty critical that we talked about this season. So we talk about, just just to refresh folks, by the way, on protocols like Eigenlayer and restaking and what that is, 
It is a very similarly to Lido. It's a two-sided marketplace in between AVSs. So actively, it's basically uh, sort of middleware service operators, especially within ETH, but it could also be um, validators for another layer one or app chain or something like that. Um, and people who have stake uh, that want to secure that. So that's the two-sided marketplace. And basically what it allows stakers to do is rehypothecate that economic security to secure uh, things either sort of one layer up on Ethereum or across different ecosystems. And uh, it's, it's a very interesting vision, you know, being able, it, it you can see at a high level, there's a very natural fit there, but there are also cause for concern, right? And one of the big things that people have been asking or, or curious about is how slashing events would happen across especially different ecosystems. And, so, and what are the, what is the risk, right, of potentially introducing leverage of rehypothecating your Ethereum stake? Or, or, you know, it just sounds, it sounds a little scary to some folks, I think, understandably. I, I think Shriram addressed many of those uh, concerns very adequately in the in the episode that we did with him earlier this season. So I'd highly recommend you go back and listen to that. But Miles, can you walk us through, you, you know, what do you, what are the training wheels that exist today on on Eigenlayer to mitigate some of those risks? And how do you see that transitioning off over a period of time? I referenced it earlier, but basically today, if you are in uh, a service that wants to be, you know, validate or wants to be secured by restaked Ethereum, and, you know, you want to basically go to the supply side of operators, which initially will just be Ethereum validators running additional hardware or software. Um, and doing additional jobs, right? And the supply side of you know economic security from stakers. Um, so in the beginning, there's going to be a lot of training wheels, um, and I think this is a, specifically to be Ethereum aligned because this is such a big and scary, but also exciting, you know, new innovation, right? Um, so in the beginning, eigenlayer governance will control which LSTs can be, you know, are whitelisted for, um, you know, eligible for restaking. Um, they will control, you know, again, which AVSs get the benefit of this human backstop, which says if there was an unintended slashing event, we have the ability to veto that. You know, I think that that is a huge sort of, uh, it's not like a, a kingmaker necessarily for AVSs, but if you are a staker and you have to decide between an AVS that you want to secure, right, that if something goes wrong, you're not going to get slashed versus an AVS that you will get slashed, which is an option. They have the permissionless option. Um, then you're obviously going to go with the one that you get protected, right? So that's a big, you know, I guess point of centralization or, or that lies within eigenlayer governance that eventually that they will move off of um, by introducing more of these veto councils. So, okay, you don't get through like the canonical eigenlayer veto council, you can go to a different one that's going to provide a similar service, right? Um, and maybe they'll charge a fee. It's unclear exactly where they do that. Um, and then, yeah, I think there's some other really interesting things going on there to protect, um, I think, the the stakers that, that restake to these, you know, new AVSs. And it's a little scary. You've got these validators that are running new types of hardware and all this, you know, slashing logic that is kind of under the hood. And and so I think, you know, again, I have a reference like Cubist building this, um, uh, this, this implementing something called the anti-slasher, um, which just aims to make mm -hmm. the validator side safer um, and ensure that they don't double sign because there's only one copy of the key. So it's really just a key management uh, product, but it's, it's really, really interesting. Um, so they're doing a lot of things that, you know, are like 
uh, aimed to be as safe as possible um, when they launch. And they will be highly curated, but they're putting people in place, right? Like we don't know what this veto council looks like, but we can imagine who it is. And it's probably a, a combination of people who are really excited about Eigenlayer, but also people who are really concerned about Eigenlayer, right? And that mm -hmm. is what will kind of ensure that the curation is is done by, you know, folks that are aligned in the, the best interests of Ethereum. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's like partly interesting because of you know the technical qualities of this debate uh it's partly interesting because of the political side of this this sort of debate and how excited we should be about restaking and whether or not we should embrace it um but it seems like that they've they've been extremely thoughtful and extremely cautious in their approach um so yeah i'll pause there but i think i think it's very interesting yeah i agree and maybe to get into the intersection between liquid staking and restaking is I think it, there are two, the, the way that I at least look at this is from let's, let's approach this from the perspective of the profitability of a validator. And let's say that there are different sidecars that that validator could add on to make themselves more profitable. Here's a great one that is very widely adopted in Ethereum has 95% market penetration MEV boost. Right, that is a an off chain marketplace which allows validators to more efficiently and trustlessly extract MEV from large centralized block builders. Boom, extra source mm -hmm. of income for validators writ large. Another sidecar will be yeah. restaking, and there'll be a certain amount of validators that opt into either. You know, you're kind of alluding to this operational model. There'll be different ways that validators can opt in. There could be a you know, very operationally intensive, but no principal agent problem model where you are a solo staker in Ethereum and then you actually run other hardware devices and you rehypothecate yourself and then you're not really relying on Eigenlayer for, for very much. But then there'll be all the way on the other side of the spectrum, if you're a liquid staker and you just redelegate that, you know, rehypothecate re that stake to someone else who is running one of these additional hardware, maybe a sequencer on L2 or a validator on another L1, then suddenly you're really increasing the, the principal agent problem quite a bit, but it's a source of income. And I think where this intersects, maybe we can start to dive into this, is what if the validators who are a part of Lido, for instance, want to opt into restaking? And this is very interesting because as Lido moves towards a more permissionless model for uh, who can valid, who can be a part of the supply side of their network, the staking router, you could, for instance, see something like a restaking module. And the, the interesting thing there is one, it would drag up the overall weighted average of Lido yield, right? Because these validators that are a part of the supply side of Lido's marketplace would be earning additional, earning additional uh, income, but that income would not be denominated in Ethereum. So for instance, here's a sort of a simple example would be, let's say some of the validators in Lido's validator set opted into running a sequencer on Optimism or Arbitrum, assuming that they decentralize the sequencer. So suddenly those rewards would actually be an OP token and ARB token. And then they would be going down into the pool. Not necessarily, not, not, not necessarily though, right? Opinion. They could just get a, re they could get a rev share mm -hmm. of ETH, you know, paid sequencer revenue, right? Maybe that makes it a little bit less complicated, but totally. You can also see like a spaghetti soup of rewards, right? Where you have like, 
I don't know, like all this sell pressure, all these rewards as they get, you know, sold back into ETH and then distributed out to the LST holders. And that's an interesting dynamic, but yeah, it's right. So you're, you're right. It could, it could, could just be Ethereum. I would argue that it's probably not going to be, I would argue that it's going to be the native token. That's how all these protocols are incentivized. That's what they want to do. So what you could have is now, instead of, you know, this, this very simple construction of staked ETH represents one-to-one ETH, you're like, well, staked ETH is actually a claim on a pool of mostly ETH, but a little bit of OP and ARB. And then if you take that one step further, like, well, it's actually OP and ARB, and we actually want to opt into running some Cosmos validators as well, so random Cosmos. And you you could see how that accelerates. I think there's a really good argument that you could make that Lido and Eigenlayer are very well run, and... I think Lido governance today would prevent this from happening, but there will likely be other restaking providers outside of just Eigenlayer and other liquid staking protocols that are less discerning. And I think one of the other challenges as well is that, you know, what you could see in an extreme is sort of this hunt for yield, right? As liquid staking protocols allow a restaking modules, they hunt for kind of, there's an adverse selection problem here where you opt into higher and higher yielding things in weirder and weirder tokens. So the blended average looks higher. There's this natural incentive there. And then what you also could do, Eigenlayer has has alluded to, or explicitly said in their white paper that they're not going to do this, but then the restaking protocol could actually issue a token that represents restake positions. That's really dangerous because those positions are not fungible. So that's where this intersection gets a little bit interesting and there's a lot of room, frankly, for bad decisions to get made and things to go wrong. I'm curious what you think. Lido's supply side of validators, right? It's the exact same supply side of, of Eigenlayer. Um, so they have this existing, you know, network of validators that some of which may or may not be interested in running additional hardware, uh, for restaking yield. Um, so they are well positioned to expand into that space if they want to. And it's kind of interesting to think through the different options. I mean, you alluded to having a restaking module, right? So that's really like adding some complexity to the core ETH product, right? As these rewards are not necessarily all denominated in, in ETH. Um, and it adds more bloat to governance, right? Because that's a very risky module to add. So you're constantly managing that risk. Uh, what are the other options if you don't want to touch the core product? You could fork Eigenlayer, have and and just let users decide if they want to take their steeth and opt into this new restaking product, right? Uh, with your again taking your validator set. So those are the operators um, that you could have, uh, or you could just not touch it and say, "Hey, winning the Ethereum liquid staking market that's big enough for us, and we want to be." You know, our goal is to minimize the surface area of governance. That's going to create the biggest possible, you know, outcome in liquid staking. Um, and those are those are the kind of the the options for that I look at for from Lido's perspective. Um, but it is kind of similar to like the you know we, Lucas who we had on from Gito right with their their um, what's it called their MEV client on Solana gave them a relationships with all of these validators already. Right. And so then it was a natural expansion into liquid staking. And by the way, this liquid staking token yields more than the others because it's only delegating to validators that use this MEV client. Um, so, you know, I think that 
that's sort of the dynamic here is where you see these synergies, but it's will be very interesting to see if Lido goes, because that kind of goes against everything we were talking about earlier in the episode and how they're minimizing the surface area, you know, mitigating the principal agent problems, not and like probably wouldn't help with the self-limiting debate if they're, you know, expanding aggressively into restaking at this point. Um, but you could see a competitor doing that, right? Let's say a competitor forks, uh, forks eigenlayer as well. Um, and then, you know, builds offers their own LST that is a combination of normal staking and restaking. So if you deposit here, you get both sides of that yield. Um, that might be a, be a way to compete on yield. If you're, you know, it's definitely a different risk profile than, than Steve, but um, yeah, I think that'll be interesting. Like we could also see, you know, liquid restaking uh, become a thing. So right. you right. have a, you know, a normal staking position or an LST you delegate it to an operator, they go validate, you know, a couple other pieces of, you know, software or hardware for, for AVSs. Um, and then like on the other side, you mint and some sort of LST that represents your position. Um, and yeah, I think, I think it will be very interesting to see how it plays out. I actually think it's less likely, uh, at this given time that, that Lido moves into liquid uh restaking like aggressively um i just think they have a lot on their plate and they're doing very very well and why yeah you know trying to fix something that's not broken um but worth paying attention to because it's going to become more and more important yeah i would be very surprised if lido did that i don't think they're going to from my understanding but there is a dynamic um that you are always at the mercy of your stupidest competitor and the bad part about bull markets is that really poor behavior, and especially very risk-seeking behavior, gets rewarded not over a months-long time frame, but a years-long time frame. And many folks, by listening to this podcast, have had the experience of competing against someone who is taking an enormous amount of risk, and it looked like they were winning for an extremely long period of time. And I cannot tell you how psychologically damaging that is if you have been in that position. And it leads to poor decision making, to be honest. Um, so I, I would just—it's like it's—it's I mean, it's, it's like you're speaking would, from experience there, Mike. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> Seems like you're re really, really hit a nerve. Anyways, we can, we'll, we'll, we'll leave. Um, but but what I would say is, it's I think it's important to have a long term mindset yeah. in this industry, and I, I hope if if folks get get something out of this season that. Maybe right now in a bear market when people are keyed into and, and open to hearing about these these long-term risks, then we, we don't make silly decisions during the bull market that we end up regretting. Liquid restaking seems like to me just something, an example of a road that we just do not want to go down. It, it adds an enormous amount of complexity. It, these 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 positions are not fungible, right? So there will be a myriad opportunity uh, set of opportunities where people can rehypothecate their stake and earn various tokens. Some of which will be not super risky. So maybe that's running a sequencer on Optimism or Arbitrum, and then there'll be a whole new set of layer ones or weird app chains or whatever it is that people can opt into, and the yield will look quite good. What we'll probably get is some amount of tranching of risk. Maybe there's a, a an intelligent way and a slightly less intelligent way to do it, but you know history would tell us that during the bull market, people don't care about intelligent ways and they'll do dumb stuff. And I just 
we're, we're messing with something very close to the metal here of how Ethereum, the protocol works. So I would just urge caution. I'm sorry, but it's going to happen. Like liquid restaking is, is, is going to happen whether we like it or not. Um, and so two, it's about, I would say two is, is it can it be done in a safe way? Uh, and it, if you think about it, you know, it's very, as Sam said, when we brought him on, like this just gets closer to a more sophisticated balance sheet that you're managing. Right. So maybe you don't get to mint, you know, your liquid staking position one to one based off of the risk profile of it, right? So maybe you can maybe it's more like yeah. Maker, where if you deposit, you know, risky collateral, you can mint less of that token, right? Uh, of Dai on the other side. If you if you deposit USDC, right, which is even safer than Dai, then you can mint more or less one to one. Um, I think that you know that approach is interesting and could work. Uh, and I think it will just be a question of, you know, it's not that scary until it gets very big. And so paying attention to how fast it's growing and what the sort of protections in place are, um, yeah, will be interesting, but I, I don't see like I can layer necessarily embracing something like that. Right. As they're just trying to avoid their own self-limiting debate at this point before they even get off the ground or whatever their version of it will be, um, as probably will happen. Yeah, I I agree with you. I think it's inevitable as well to some degree. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I have a great, <laughs> no. great follow-up. <laughs> it's definitely going to happen. So yeah, just stay yeah. frosty out there. Yeah. Be careful, yeah. folks. So last last question here, because you were starting to allude to it on the episodes that we did with Lucas from Gito and Sam from Frax, but this idea of looking for examples of horizontal expansion and sort of finding your way to liquid staking. But the last dynamic is, I would say, a friendly, healthy co-opetition dynamic in between Lido and Eigenlayer, for instance. So you get very, they're, they're related, right? There's a, the, the flow that I would say most people will ultimately take uh, is people liquid stake with Lido and then they take their liquid staking token, their Steeth, and they delegate that into the eigenlayer marketplace and they earn additional yield on that, hopefully in the safest way possible. But you could see a world, right? One way to for Lido to have a little bit more control or take a little bit more margin, depending on that I think they're both both of those are good reasons for doing this, is to say, instead of allowing a re restaking module within the staking router that eigenlayer controls, we're going to build one ourselves. And what I would say if I were Lido in that situation is we're doing this to limit the amount of different, uh, for instance, tokens, right? Like what we don't want is this batch of weird tokens getting into the the Steeth pool. It's also a good way for them to not pay rent to Eigenlayer, right? And squeeze some of that margin out themselves. But you could see them, you could see them building that. Now that goes against limiting the governance surface area that I think we heard from we heard from a couple different folks from Lido this season about why they don't want to do that. But you could see that ultimately happen. So that's where. It's a little bit of a co-opetition sure. dynamic, I'd say, between. Yeah, I mean, if I in two years, 75% of Steeth holders are also restaking, you know, you'd look at that and probably be like, well, this is what all of our users are doing with their Steeth anyways. Um, maybe we should consider moving in and taking a slice of that, um, right? If, if, if we are also, you know, the supply side of Eigenlayer, or at least our the operators are within our set. Um, but yeah, I think it's... I think they're of all people the least motivated to need to do something like that. Um, there, I don't think there's anybody, you know, 
else in crypto with as big of a market lead um, as they do right now. So we'll see. Um, but it does get into this idea of, you know, you've got some core competencies, whether it's balance sheet management like Frax or it's, you know, um, validator infrastructure like Jito. Um, what can we use these core competencies for? Um, and, you know, it at times will lead to liquid staking. Um, yeah. I totally agree. So I think there's a, I, I think that's an iron law of capitalism, but you see it play out in crypto quite often is that when there's a sector that is outperforming, you're going to get many mm -hmm. copycats, right? There, you're going to look at someone that's making a lot of margin, say, hey, I'd like to make some of that margin. I, I think I could do that. And you're going to see lots of different competitions spring up. I think you saw that with stable coins quite a bit. And I think you're seeing that with liquid staking as well. And it's been interesting to watch the road that different liquid staking providers have approached this. And we talked to two different folks this season who I think this is relevant for. One is Sam Kazamian of Frax and the other is Lucas. And I think they look similar on the surface, but they're a little bit different. And what I would say is Sam took a look at what his competencies were originally as being an issuer of a stable coin and said, really what I'm good at here is managing assets and liabilities and risk management is my competency. And I, what I want to do is take a look at the world and see where that would be applicable, this skill set instead of operational com uh, competencies that I have. And, oh, operating a stable coin actually looks very similar under the hood to operating a liquid staking protocol. So that's an example of taking a shared set of competencies. Then there's what Lucas did at MEV, which is sort of like a cross-selling or cross-selling strategy almost in a way, which is to say, I view validators as my customers, right? I've been trying to solve MEV. I've got a client here, which is going to run an auction for you and and extract MEV in a more efficient way. Uh, but also, hey, I know you're a validator. And uh, one of the other things that you're thinking about is liquid staking. So maybe there are some synergies there. So one, in in the form of FRAX, it's, hey, how are these how are these competencies that I have built up? How can I leverage this in another in another area? And then in the in the case of Jito, it's hey, my valid my customers are validators. What other service can I? Well, it makes offer their them? original client more attractive, right? It says, okay, you you run this client, right. you get extra uh, yield from the PBS auction. Oh, and by the way, we're launching a liquid staking token, and we're going to deposit that liquid staking token only to validators that are running our client. Um, and so that that to me makes a lot of sense, and that's that's differentiated. Um, probably one of the more differentiated approaches to, to LSTs across the whole space. Um, so that makes a lot of sense with Frax. You know, I think it 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 does as well, but it's interesting that you know Maker chose to partner there because um, you are kind of you know it's the same sort of activity, right? Managing a balance sheet, but you are definitely opening yourself up to to more risk and putting more in to the scope of governance. Um, and so far, you know, they've, they've been growing very quickly though, um, because they're, you know, leveraging those competencies mm -hmm. to offer more yield than other LST providers can. Um, and yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, but it will be interesting as, you know, they could have also been looked at Lido as a partner, right. And maybe Frax could have had their own L you know, staking module at some point that kicked back some revenue, but they decided to be a little bit more aggressive, which, it's interesting. Yeah, I think I think we could see more of that. I think so as well. The I it's not something that I necessarily thought about, but the inter there does seem to be in particular a, a very interesting intersection of MEV and liquid staking. And 
definitely Jito is a protocol to keep your eye on. I, I'll be curious to see. I probably have the least conviction on just in terms of how liquid staking is going to play out in Solana, but it does feel like Jito is the protocol that has sort of observed this this intersection that makes quite a bit of sense. And I bet you'll see other players start to yeah. merge. Like on, on, pa- on paper, it's like, why isn't Gito the dominant provider already, right? But then that also goes back to kind of the power of these earlier mover advantages and, and them compounding over time. Um, but yeah, Solana is kind of the wild west of uh, liquid staking, just in terms of market share. You don't really know where things are going to go or just how big liquid staking is even going right. to be. Um, so yeah, I think it's very different dynamics over there versus Cosmos, which is like Adam has one sort of competitive dynamic and then, you know, app chains are very different, right? Um, there's the, the nature of those tokens are very different and makes, you know, like liquid staking for a low cap app chain is maybe a little bit less attractive as, you know, to be able to use this collateral in a lending protocol as like Ethereum, right? Um, but there's still a market there and so it's uh it'll be interesting yeah yeah and maybe that's the last dynamic we can just close on here and and just start to wrap for the season which is it's a really good point about again some of this what will take off in different ecosystems i think the the big difference between cosmos and solana which is very similar in terms of why liquid staking hasn't taken off quite as much is solana does have a unifying token cosmos technically has a unifying token in the form of atom but it's a little bit less clear and i think this is relevant for rollups on Ethereum, but also app chains in Cosmos is, is more of a demand, I think, to liquid stake something that you view as useful collateral, whereas app chain tokens are really equity. And I'm not sure that there's as much demand to liquid stake something that looks like equity because that's not collateral that you would then take and use somewhere else. I just, I think that's a fundamental limitation here. That's not a tech thing. It's just a, what are we, what are we building? I'm interested to see how prevalent liquid staking of Celestia's token will be, right? Because if I think about like tokens that will have qualities most similar to ETH, uh, Celestia, you know, checks a lot of those boxes. Um, obviously, the token itself is not like they're not shilling it as money, um, but it is a token that all these you know rollups are going to need to hold, right, in order to pay their DA costs. It is a token that will kind of unify all the users of the rollups. Um, you know, maybe it's a gas token, right? And then it, it, it you can see like the similarities to ETH um, much more so than say like an app chains token and even more more so than Solana in, in some regards. Um, and so, yeah, we'll we'll see how that plays out. So maybe maybe just just sum up <laughs> again, this this ramble that you and I have gone through here, Miles, what we would expect to see and we should do, we should implement some kind of process where we check ourselves and, and see how, how, how right we were on any of the stuff that we've talked about. But we would expect to see yeah, liquid staking be very winner take all, but the network effects do not cross uh, different ecosystems. So it'll be winner take most in Ethereum, different winner take most in Solana, different winner take most in Cosmos and other ecosystems like Celestia or other big mm-hmm. ones in the future. Um, we would probably both urge caution, I think, in between this emerging connection of liquid staking and restaking. And there's probably a great way to do it and a not so great way to do it. I would say we're both in the camp of not really loving the self-limiting debate. That doesn't mean we think that Lido should just be able to go hog wild and do whatever they want. But the best the best way to mitigate the the risks of having a winner take most market structure is to 
decentralize the governance of the protocol, open up the validator set and make it much of more the winner of the winner over time. Right. And, yeah. Of the winner of the I winner agree. of the winner. Yes. Um, and then it'll be just interesting to see the intersection of liquid staking and other yeah. other products, right? So stable coins, there's sort of a natural operational fit. MEV, there's more, there's a synergy there as well. So just be interesting to see how other players choose to totally. compete. Totally. As yeah. Well. I, um, yeah. Yeah. I am getting a little sick of these self-limiting debates when, you know, nobody's looking at the solution of, hey, let's build it into the protocol if we feel this opinionated about it, uh, build some sort of regulation in the protocol, or, hey, let's all get together and build something way better, right? Um, and then instead of telling the team that's kind of been the most eth aligned but also the most successful to be less successful. Um, I don't think that's the sort of, you know, if Ethereum is a platform for dApps, I don't think that is the, you know, signal that you want to send to future developers. Um, that if you are successful, we're going to attack you until you stop. Like, I don't, I think, I mm -hmm. think folks, you know, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Ethereum needs to be careful with this Ethereum alignment. I mean, we see maker talking about maker chain, DYDX has gone off. Uniswap is now leveraging a lot of off chain stuff for Uniswap X. And Hayden has said, you know, many times how extractive the platform is. And so, yeah, it's, I love Ethereum, but, um, we, uh, that, that's my general, maybe sign off take on the self-limiting debate. It's like build something better or get together and build something into the protocol. Right now it feels, you know, I've talked about this whole ecosystem feels very infrastructure heavy and I would probably lean more towards the side of the dynamic that you've seen in web two is probably going to mirror what ends up happening in web three and a lot of value is going to accrue to apps. And by the way, that would be a best case outcome for crypto. We want there to be new apps and products and services that people want to use. You know, right now it's, you know, we're recording this in September of 2023. One of the biggest risks that we have hanging over our head is regular, the regulatory environment in the U S you know what the best way is to obfuscate that or to move past that regulatory threat, build stuff that people want. America responds to consumer desire and the power of the consumer. That's a powerful thing. Right now, we've got one hand tied behind our back because regular average everyday people in the world don't use crypto for anything. And that has to change. So that's what I would say as well. And I think that should be a, a design. And I like I I see both sides of it with the with the Ethereum alignment thing. I I get that we want to be aligned here in terms of our values. I also think that there needs to be a little bit of a stick in terms of when you're socially coordinating huge groups of people. But I think there's yeah, I think there are, I, I probably would, I think there are other better ways of sure. talking about it yeah. as well. But my, my heart, I mean, I, people are just trying to get to the best solution <laughs> here. So, all right, Miles, um, this was, this was really fun, buddy. Uh, great, great season. And I, I the, the next season you and I are, are not going to be doing together, but uh, the one after that, I think we already oh, yeah. have the, uh, I think we're already we're ideating on and, and have a really fire season for people. So. I'm very excited to listen to the next season of Bell Curry, even though I, uh, yeah, the, the replace, my replacement will be great. So. Um, this has been a blast. Uh, I'm so glad we did it. And yeah, hope hope the listeners enjoyed it as well. Me too, man. All right. See you. Cheers, partners.